we have quite a bit of feast days when it comes to Jesus. The nativity of our Lord, the baptism of our Lord, the transfiguration of our Lord, the passion of our Lord, the resurrection of our Lord, the ascension of our Lord, just to name a few. So it seems a little bizarre that in 1925, Pope Pius XI said, you know what we need one more of? A feast of our Lord. But here's the backstory. We're in the aftermath of World War I. Humankind is wounded. Neighborhoods are destroyed. Souls are crushed. And psyches are shattered. As everyone wonders, where was God in this carnage? In this delicate state, opportunists begin to rise up. Leaders who would say, give me boundless allegiance and unlimited power, and I will fix everything. Our stalled economies will become powerful, our crushed spirits will be lifted up, and our wounded armies will become strong once again. Pius XI knew what kind of kingdoms they wanted to build. And he knew there is only one person in the universe who could ever truly restore humankind to a state of dignity and glory. And it was no one here on earth. Rather, it was he who was enthroned forever in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. And so Pius XI wrote, we deem it in keeping with our apostolic office to accede to the desire of many by closing this year with the insertion into the sacred liturgy, a special feast of the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. And with that, many throughout Christendom quickly began celebrating the feast of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the universe, or as we Anglicans call it, the feast of Christ the King. We celebrate this feast day to remember there is but one way to rule. There is but one way to build the kingdom. And it is not through force. It is not through blaming. Nor is it through the consolidation of power. It is by serving. It is by loving. This is why one of our hymns says, when Jesus left his father's throne, he chose a humble birth. This is the first clue as to what kind of kingdom Christ desires. Forgoing a grand and fortified palace, not taking the body of someone fully grown in stature, draped in lavish imperial robes, instead choosing a cold stable in the middle of a desert, swaddled in what rough and worn cloth a poor mother might have to offer. He did this so that he might not be a burden to any, not taking from the world the finest it had to offer, but being swaddled in the least, what was left for the poorest of the poor. His poverty was his regal vestiture. 
When the time came for his ministry, he didn't feast lavishly, citing a need for strength for all he was to do. Instead, he fasted in the wilderness, fueled by his faith. And it was at his weakest that he boldly proclaimed, Be gone, Satan. His frailty was his rock, and with Satan cast aside, his ministry began. Through his incarnation, he took on eyes so that he might give sight to others. He took on health so that the sick might be cured. He took on hands so that he might lift up bread to heaven and feed 5,000 and countless others from age to age through the holy mystery of the Eucharist. When the hour had come for him to be glorified, he ascended not directly into heaven, neither claiming his scepter nor sitting on his throne. Instead, he climbed on the cold, hard wood of the cross, the king himself charged with treason, God himself charged with blasphemy. And then God did what only God could do. Irony became salvation. Punishment became freedom. His subjection to the world became its conquering of it. And most gloriously, death became life. It was through this model of living, poverty begetting clothes, frailty begetting strength, subjecting begetting conquering, and taking on what was given so that it might be given to others, that we see two things. First, those things which the world tells us we do not have, God provides for us for the building of his kingdom. Through Christ's poverty, God gave him the world. Through Christ's frailty, God gave him strength. Through Christ's subjection, God conquered sin and death. Our inadequacies are God's strongest characteristics. For it is through our perforated souls that the Holy Spirit rushes into the world to accomplish the works of salvation. And the Spirit does it with our eyes, with our health, and with our hands. And the second thing Christ's kingdom teaches us is this. Those things which are given to us are given to us so that we might share them. God gives us food so that we, when we see someone hungry, we might feed them. God gives us water so that when we see someone who is thirsty, they no longer are parched. God gives us clothes so that when we see someone who is naked, we might clothe them. Christ took on the things of this world so that he might give the things of the world to others. Food, weather, clothes, and shelter. But infinitely more importantly, respect, the feeling of being seen, and a sense of dignity. 
a sense that each and every person is someone worthy of inheriting the kingdom. This is how Christ the King reigned here on earth, and Christ needs our help to continue building this kingdom. This kingdom is not built on faith alone, nor is it built on works alone. It is built on love alone, love being the junction of faith and works. The love we receive from God is the love we are to share, and that is how we exalt our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the universe, by loving him and serving him, by loving others and serving others, all the days of our lives. To him be blessing and honor and glory and dominion, now and forever and to the ages of ages.